and to be a follower of Christ. This first verse is not so much talking about what to do as it is who you are. Live appropriately to who you are. And that is the baptized believer in Jesus Christ. That defines you. That spells out what kind of person you should be. You are called to be. So the focus is not a list of things to do. The focus is be who you are a baptized believer in Christ. That's what defines you as a person. Now, that's what defines you as the kind of person you are called to be. All right. Um, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Let's talk about those three words. How to describe or define humility. Um, it doesn't begin with you saying, I'm, I'm really humble. Okay, that doesn't work. The best way to talk about humility is this, that you recognize that you would be nothing without God. Let me say that again. The recognition that what you have, who you are, you would have nothing and be nothing without God. If you think of it that way, that will keep you humble. Because... There is nothing left but give thanks to God for what you are, who you are, what you do. It is God that is doing it. Now, that's humble. In all gentleness or gentleness and meekness, there's a passage in the Old Testament that says that uh, Moses was the meekest man ever born except for Jesus, okay? Uh, now, how to define meekness, that's tough. And you think of meek as being weak, right? That's the first thing you think about. Jesus Christ was not weak, okay? But... Being meek is not presuming that you are better than others. Okay? Moses led Israel, but he did not. There are no illustrations in the Old Testament of uh, Moses being power-hungry or lording his power over the people. 
also meekness. And then it says with patience. I don't pray for patience because you know what God will do to you to give it to you. Uh, patience, the best way to define patience is this. Look how patient God is with sinful mankind. Look how patient God is with our sinful weakness. He gives us chance after chance after chance. He forgives us time after time after time. He is patient with us. So we are called to exhibit the kind of patience God has with us to be that kind of patient with other people and their sinful weakness. Just as God is patient with us for our sinful weakness. Now, when you talk about humility and gentleness and patience, the world thinks all these are foolish and a waste of time. If you would ask what the world wants, it's power and prestige, intimidation, long list. But these three are not what the world prays for or wants to be like. So they are just the opposite of what the world wants. These three words then define this, how our calling, how who we are. Okay? We are to be totally different than the world totally different. Uh, we're not to be like the world. So humility, gentleness or meekness with patience, bearing with one another in love, bearing, bearing with each other in love. Okay. So, and the word there, is agape, God's kind of love, okay? Not what we dream of, but God's kind of love. To bear with one another because we are all sinful people. And we all have to bear with each other and our sins because none of us are perfect. So it's being patient and humble. It's being humble and knowing you're no better than anybody else, and we're all in the same boat. Being patient when people do things wrong. Being gentle and meek, not lording over others. All these things is, are these things are what we are to be about. Then verse 3. Hastening to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. All right, 
Unity is a major theme in Ephesians. If you think about it, the real uh, message of chapter 3 was unity. Unity between Jew and Gentile. That God, through Christ, made the two one. So the unity discussion was already begun in chapter 3. Now the unity is spoken of as the unity uh, of all believers, okay? All believers. And notice it says, hastening to keep the unity of the Spirit. This unity is not of us. The Spirit gives us unity. It is a gift of God. If we take the people just in this room, would we ever have been united as one if we had not come here? You don't know, you wouldn't know these other people at all. The unity is created when we are called by the gospel and we come to faith in Jesus Christ. That gives us unity with one another because we realize we're all the same, that the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed us. We are all on our way to heaven. We're all traveling the same way with the same goal, and that unites us. But it's a gift of the Spirit. It happens because the Holy Spirit is working in each one of us. In the bond of peace. Peace is talked about as the true result of the gospel. Because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have peace with one another. So this peace, the bond of peace, flows from our unity in the Spirit. And notice it says, hasten to keep it. In other words, it's a priority for us. It's a priority for us to be united in the Spirit and to not let outside things cause division in this body, in this unity. Now, as long as we stay on the spiritual track, that's pretty easy. But when somebody wants to make the decision of what color to paint the fellowship hall, you can split a church over it. That's letting outside insignificant things break up the unity. So it's prioritizing. What? What? 
creates the unity. What destroys unity. And frankly, if it's not doctrinal, as I say, it's not worth breaking the unity. Not worth breaking the unity. All right. So hasten in the bond of peace in body and in spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling. All right. You were called into one hope. There is one hope that all of us have in common. One hope we have in common is eternal life. That's the one goal we all have. Nothing else is worth that goal. Eternal life through Jesus Christ. So there's one hope, and we all have that hope. We all have that hope. And that's the hope of our calling in Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. All right. The Lord here probably refers to Jesus Christ because the next verse talks about the Father. So one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, one faith. Now, is that the faith in which each of us believes in? Or is that the faith by which we believe? If it's by which we believe, everyone has their own faith. It's, it's the faith we believe in, then we all have the same faith. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It depends on whether the word is subjective or objective. And in this case, it's got to be objective because each of us have a faith given by God. But we believe in the body of faith. We all believe in the Apostles' Creed. Okay? It's the content of the faith that's being talked about here. The content. We all believe in the same content of faith. Content of faith. And we'll talk about that a little later. And one baptism. One baptism. Okay. Uh, you know, when someone comes to us uh, from another Christian denomination, and they've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with water. We do not rebaptize them. One baptism. Okay. One baptism. It is that one baptism that literally creates our oneness in Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, 
who is over all, through all, and in all. In other words, the Father, it's the Father of us all. He is every one of our heavenly Father. He is over all, through all, and all. This is talking about creation. It's talking about redemption. It's talking about all that God does for us. Plus, he's the fulfillment of all. All things live and move and have their being in him. Okay? So there's only one Lord Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one Father, God and Father of us all. Okay? Then it says, grace was given to each one of us according to the, ma uh, the measure according to the measure of the gift or the gift of Christ. Okay. Now, what's being talked about here according to the measure? The first thing we think of when we think about measure is different amounts. Our mind immediately goes to 1 Corinthians, that there are different parts of the body, and he gives different gifts to each. That's not what's being talked about here. Because it's, seven, it's given to each one of us. And it doesn't say different gifts to each one of us. The measure here is referring to all the gifts that Jesus Christ won for you. And they're given to each of us. He doesn't withhold certain gifts that he earned for some and not others. The measure is referring to the fullness of what Christ won for us, given to each of us. Not different amounts to each one. The gift of grace is best defined as because of Jesus Christ, God is favorable to you. God shows favor to you because of Jesus Christ. And we usually define grace as undeserved love, but there's still a little law to that because it condemns us. We don't deserve it. Grace is better defined as God's favor towards us in Christ. God's favor toward us in Christ. It doesn't depend on us. Okay? It doesn't depend on us. So Paul is saying it's very important 
for us to hold on to the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, one hope, all of this is what unites us. And it is of critical importance that we hold on to that gift that the Spirit has given us of unity. And there's no discussion here of Jew or Gentile. That's gone. That was put to rest in chapter 3. Now, it's just all believers in Christ. United. Okay? United. And that's Paul's emphasis here. That's what he's talking about. Any thoughts, questions, that point? All right. Let's go on. Therefore, it says, when he ascended into the highest, or into heaven, he took captive captivity and gave gifts to men. All right, you're going to get a dose of real Bible study in the morning. I want you to turn to Psalm 68. And I want you to go down to verse 18. It says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Not giving, receiving. All right, let's dive in. This is the verse that Paul is quoting, but Paul changes it. Now, he is divinely inspired, so he can do that. Don't you be just changing words, okay? It says what this psalm was for was when David brought the Ark of the Covenant after battle, and there were captives led behind him, and he received gifts from the people. It is also used to illustrate that God leads the enemies, conquers the enemies for the people, and receives their worship. God receives gifts, their worship. But if we go back to um, our passage in Ephesians, we see when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
Paul is now applying this passage to the ascended Lord. When you ascended, when he ascended, he left, he, he led a host of captives because he had defeated all our enemies. Now, the best translation is he captured captivity. Now, what does that mean? All of our enemies, sin, death, and Satan, held us captive. He captured our captivity and beat it. He captured our captivity and triumphed over it. He captured what held us captive and conquered. And this time, he doesn't receive gifts. He gives because he captured our captivity, he gives us. And so this is how this passage is quoted and how Paul takes it from an application of the Old Testament. Of course, David foreshadowed the Christ and God and applied it to Christ with a twist, okay, with a twist, from Psalm 68. So he ascended on high and captive, captured captivity, and he gave gifts met. All right, everybody with me? Yes, Ruth. Well, that would be everything he won. That's back to the measure. Everything he won for us in his death and resurrection, he gives to us. Forgiveness, peace, uh, all of it. Okay? Those are the gifts. And they are given to each one of us, not different ones to different people, because that's that's... The work of the Spirit elsewhere, but here we're talking about what Christ did. All right, anything else? Yeah. We don't give him gifts. We give him gifts. Question is, God gives us gifts. We don't give him gifts. He doesn't need our gifts. Now, he will accept them in thanksgiving from those who believe in him in faith. But we receive the gift in the divine service through word and sacraments. We don't, that is the most important part. When we call it divine service, it's not a description, it's an act. God is serving us in church by giving us his word through which the Holy Spirit works and through the gifts of baptism and the Lord's Supper.
He's giving us the gifts. The divine service means he's serving us. And that's where we receive the gifts on this earth. You're not walking down the street and it just falls on you. Okay? God is a God of order and works through means. And his means are through word and sacrament. So that's why it's so important to be a part of worship. Because you receive the gifts there. If you're not part of worship, you don't receive the gifts. Okay? You don't receive the gifts. So it's critical. And what does worship also do? Unites us in the spirit. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Worship has that. Worship does that. All right. Anything else? Yeah. Dennis. All right. Be ready to cut the feed. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I would say, you know, it was tough on everybody. It certainly didn't help the unity. But the fact that we did it spoke of how important it is to us that we would do it. At that point, we were obeying the laws of the land. And, and so um, it was hard, but notice, now we're back together and we're glad. Unity brings a smile to our face again. And uh, 8 o'clock was full this morning. I hadn't seen it that full. Uh, it's good. It's good. The world tried to break the unity and fail. Now we're back. Now we're back because God, the Holy Spirit, works in us. And we all know how important that is. To be together. One another. Yeah. I'd Gift, singular. That's right. If, if you, if you, uh, the Spirit gives gifts to men. Christ gives the gift of his grace and all he earned for us. It's one. It's singular. It's singular. All right. Now, and he says, what is... When he ascended, except that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. The one who descended, uh, he who descended is the one who ascended 
to uh, ascend it far above all the heavens in order to fulfill all things. All right, now, this passage, these two verses have been debated for a long time, longer than any of us have been around. And the question has been, there's not so much question as to what it means that he ascended. We know that. But is this another passage that refers to Christ's descent to hell from 1 Peter 3.18? And we've gone round and round and studied and studied and studied. We don't, we think that certainly the descent to hell is part of it part of it. But we also simply believe that this refers to the incarnation. He was God. And he became incarnate and came down to the earth. And his work was then on this earth to save us, and that included his descent to hell. But this is not just referring to the descent to hell. It's his whole ministry. He descended to save us. He ascended, leading captivity captive. So that the descent is not just his descent to hell. It is his descent, his incarnation, to save us, uh, to fulfill uh, all uh, all things, okay, that he might fill all things. By filling all things, what it's saying is he was the fulfillment of everything. He was the fulfillment of creation. He was the fulfillment of redemption. He's the fulfillment of the last day. He's the fulfillment of all. Okay? So he descended. He was incarnate. He did the work of redemption, and he ascended into heaven. Okay? Now, having done that, then he says, and he gave... some to be apostles or the apostles, some prophets, the prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. All right. There are several things we need to notice about this. If he was referring to Old Testament prophets, it would say and he gave some to be prophets, some to be apostles, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Notice apostles is first. The apostles, it is no doubt, are the twelve. Okay? 
But the prophets now are not the Old Testament prophets. They are people in the New Testament age who speak as prophets. Now, let's define the word prophet. We always think a prophet is one that tells the future. That is not the primary definition of a prophet. The primary definition of a prophet is one who speaks the word of God. And so this is speaking of New Testament prophets. Those who were expounding the faith. So don't think of Old Testament prophets here. Think of those people that God used to speak the word of God in the New Testament and beyond the New Testament. Okay? So some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists. Now, evangelist uh, is really implying does the work of an evangelist. There's only uh, a few times where this word evangelist is used in the New Testament. It's used of Philip. It's used of Philip's daughters. They were prophetesses. They are spoken of. So it's used very sparingly. To do the work of an evangelist is not... It's not... Let me say this, what it is. It's speaking the word of the gospel. Doing the work of an evangelist is speaking the word of Christ to others. And that applies to all of us. When we speak to another about Jesus Christ, we are doing the work of an evangelist. Work of the evangelist. And then pastors. That's fair. The word is actually shepherds. Okay? And it's defined by those as those who shepherd souls, shepherd people, pastors. Okay? And teachers. Teachers referring to anyone who teaches the Word of God. Anyone who teaches the Word of God. So it could be our teachers in the school. It could be any school teacher. It could be, it's very broad term. So in other words, what it's saying is, he descended to earth to do the work to save us. He ascended into heaven, leading captivity captive. And now that that's done, he makes sure that the word of God is preached and taught to the world through apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And that goes on until the end of time. So part of his uh, work 
uh, remember, he's a prophet, priest, and king. He is called the prophet, and part of his work as prophet is to make sure the word of the gospel is proclaimed in this world until he comes again. And how does he do it? We said he works through means. He comes to us through word and sacrament. Does he come down and preach the gospel himself? Well, he started it. But now through the means of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, that word goes on. The work of prophecy goes on. Remember, prophecy does not mean tell the future. Okay? It means to speak the word of God. Speak the word of God. So he gives these gifts so that it is ongoing. Okay, let's look at one more verse. Why does he do this? For the completion or perfection of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, why does he do this? First of all, for the, um, it's actually perfection or completion of the saints. In other words, he does this so that we become all that God wants us to be as his people. That will not be perfect until we get to heaven. But he's already working on us. And the way he works on us is through the word. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. For the perfection, ultimate perfection of the saints. Okay? Then for the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is the proclamation of Christ. That it continues. And so they are to equip us to speak of Christ in our own lives to others. And for the building up of the body of Christ, that word has two implications. First of all, adding stones to the building. Adding stones to the building. And the second implication is strengthening the stones that are in the building. That's why you're here today. You are in the building. You are stones built in that building. But now you are seeking to be stronger stones within that building. So it's both addition, bringing more saints, More people come to faith. It's building the building, and it's strengthening the building. It's strengthening building. Okay? That's why he does this. That's why he gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, so that this happens. So that this happens. All right. Questions, comments.
Yeah, Laurie. Yes. Yes. Yes, it does. Strengthen the save, save the lost. And that, this word is, basically means has the implication of both things. Other thoughts? Questions? Oh, one more. Yeah, Leslie. Yes. Well, the people of the invisible, what is the invisible church? The invisible church is the church we can't see. Okay? Because we can't see the hearts of the people. God does. So we speak of the church being invisible. The visible church is what we can see. Everybody who comes. But the implication is that there may be some that come that are part of the visible church that are not part of the invisible church, but only God knows. That's why it's referred to as invisible. Okay? Because only God can see the heart. Okay? All right. Now remember, next week we'll finish chapter 4. But then remember, there's no Bible class on Easter Sunday. Okay? There's a service in here. So we'll skip a week and then get started again. All right, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.